Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Today, I have the pleasure to share with you a conversation I had with Amanda Clayman. Amanda is a clinician specialized in money issues. And I have to say that this conversation was really refreshing. I don't know how you relate to money, but I can tell you that for me as an immigrant, as a person coming from a working class family, I did have some beliefs and ways of relating to money that instead of helping me to live the life that I wanted to have, they were actually limiting what I was doing. It took me a lot to develop a new relationship with money and to overlay different ways in which I was making financial decisions in the past. So when I discovered Amanda's work, I was, oh my goodness, I really, really want to interview her. In this conversation, you are going to listen to Amanda's journey in becoming a clinician specialized in money issues. And you're also going to listen how she talks about money in a way that helps people to make values-based decisions, how she coaches people how to relate to financial anxiety, how she coaches people to make decisions that involves taking risks, and how she coaches people to manage those risks as they're making decisions. So again, this was a very refreshing conversation. If you are feeling ashamed or anxious about money-related issues, I hope you listen to this interview because there is a huge difference when we can look at money in a way that serves our values. And I think Amanda does an incredible job capitalizing that in her work, as you will hear in this conversation. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Bye-bye. Amanda, I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with you and learn more about the work you're doing and also how you help people to handle financial struggles. So thank you for making the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. You know, when I was going over your website, my mind was going, oh my goodness, there, I have so many curiosities. And perhaps I can start by asking more, how did you get into becoming a financial wellness coach? What's your story behind that? If you don't mind sharing a little bit of that. Not a bit. Um, You know, sometimes people think you went into this field, you must be somebody who's very comfortable with money, who has her financial life 
all set up in 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 neat little boxes um, where all the columns add up. But actually, the way that I came to this work was that as a young adult, I I was doing kind of what young adults do. I was focused on on graduating from my education and and moving to a city that I wanted to live in and starting my career and making friends and money was really the last thing on my mind the only time that I thought about money was when it kind of gotten my way of what I wanted to do and so what happened is that that some, there were consequences that started to accumulate in my life and what do I mean by that well I moved from Michigan to New York and in New York, I discovered that, for example, you need to pay a broker's fee when you get an apartment, which is usually one and a half months rent. I think they might have done away with this in the last couple of years. But when I was a young person, uh, it was common practice to have to spend thousands of dollars just mm -hmm. to pay a broker essentially to facilitate this this rental agreement. Um I also needed a security deposit. I didn't have any savings, really, no significant savings when I moved to New York. Um, so what I did is I, I went to my credit card statements, which came with these very lovely convenience checks oh, in the back of them. And I wrote checks out to myself, deposited those checks into my bank account, and then wrote the cashier's check to the broker and to my landlord in order to get this. So I, I sort of like jump started my early adulthood with a significant, like a, probably five or $6,000 between those two. Wow. Right there in debt. And after that, the debt just kind of accumulated and accumulated and accumulated. And I wasn't paying a lot of attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I was starting to get more and more anxious Mm -hmm. about it and not knowing how to handle it. And so that anxiety for me led to a lot of avoidance behaviors mm -hmm. or really like impulsive moves. Like I would take, I would get so worried about a growing account balance that I would take all the money that was in my checking account and I would just write a check and I would send it away mm -hmm. to the editor. And of course that left me with no money to pay my bills. So like, it, it was just really like late payments and, and fees and so So it was a real mess. And to the point where I felt like no matter what else was going on in my life, whatever sort of like actual accomplishments that I had about standing on my own two feet, I always felt really ashamed about mm -hmm. the, the shambolic state of my finances. Mm -hmm. So cut to a few years into this process and the, the house of cards was starting to get more and more shaky. Um, and one day my mom came to visit me in New York and I asked her to cut my hair, which was a weird request. Um, but unbeknownst to her, I had bounced a check at my, mm -hmm. my hairstylist. And so she came and she cut my hair. It was awful. And when she said, <laughs> don't panic, cause I just like it all, it, it, this was the hitting bottom moment. And and she said, don't panic. We'll call your hairstylist. I'm sure she'll see you. And that's where I had to take a deep breath and tell my mom the truth. And that was the beginning of her kind of at that point where I expected her to be just horrified and so rejecting. Um, mm -hmm. She was actually really constructive and helpful to me in, in many of the lessons that I was, was missing in particular, how to allocate my money in a way that wasn't using a budget, <clears throat> wasn't using a budget as a form of self-punishment. Mm -hmm. And 
as she was teaching me this, and as I was in therapy, sort of working on all of these issues, I started to think like, why isn't there a person or a place that you can go to, to be messy with money Mm -hmm. and where it's not like, here's the information. And if you don't use the information the way that you're supposed to, you're a failure Mm -hmm. Um, where you can be an immature young adult who does Mm -hmm. not have life figured out yet. And somebody can kind of embrace the whole you Mm -hmm. and, and that started my wheels turning to the point where I was like, but what if this was a job? And, and that journey of, of really, first of all, establishing my own financial health, which Mm -hmm. included emotional health Mm -hmm. um, and relational health, as I communicated good boundaries to the people in my life around money um, became a journey of then getting my master's degree in social work and becoming a clinical social worker and really entering the field of mental health Mm -hmm. specifically to work with people around the role of money in their lives. So it's a very long answer to your question, but it it really did start with a personal story of, of being so in the mess and not knowing how to get myself out of it. And then thinking, well, if it was this hard for me to get out of it, how can I help other people to not have such a difficult time with that process? Well, my goodness, first, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your journey, because I think what I hear a lot and what I witness a lot is a lot of shame around money. We're afraid of charging X amount of money. We're afraid of sharing our financial struggles. So it means a lot to me that you are sharing this with us. And if it's okay to unpack this a little bit, how you make this shift of this personal pivot, you put a lot of hard time and effort in making a shift. How did you handle uncertainty? How did you start setting boundaries with people so you can be emotionally healthy? What were the internal shifts that you went through? Well, I know in your work that you have focused on on safety-seeking behaviors and how those those sometimes work for us and sometimes they don't quite work as intended. And so, for example, like one of my safety-seeking behaviors was avoidance. Like I was trying to avoid (laughs) all of the bad feelings that money seemed to bring up. Yeah. But obviously that only put me in more sort of actual um, instability mm-hmm. in my life and, and coming to, to terms with how much attention mm-hmm. and focus to give money in order to have the freedom to then actually enjoy the choices that I was making and to feel empowered about the choices that I was making. That was not something that naturally computed for me. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through a a pretty tough learning process in order to learn that. Um, The good thing is that once I learned that, that really did become a template for doing many other hard things and facing other problematic patterns in my life that weren't working. But it, it, you know, one of the the aspects of that that has proven, I think, so hopeful and wonderful mm-hmm. is that that one can come to understand with with some experience that the things that often show up in our life as problems 
mm-hmm. are really opening the door for us to explore how to just make our lives work better. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like when clients come to me, I'm, I'm saying, yes, you know, money is often the thing that points us toward the places that, and opportunities that we have to heal and grow in mm-hmm. our lives. And if we appreciate that, then it helps us to be able to step back from the shame, which can feel so overwhelming, mm-hmm. um, to step back from the anxiety, all those things that kind of cloud our perception of what's happening and what needs to shift and to, to be a little bit more neutral mm-hmm. about really taking stock. And that's one of the steps that I work through with clients is like, the first thing that we're going to do is actually not focus on change. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do first is just gather information about what is and make sure we have that we know all of the things that we need to about how this is working and not working. I think sometimes the challenge is that we may think of financial struggles as something that requires a quick fix, but we're not looking at all the internal experiences that are driving us to make those decisions. If I can ask a little bit more, so in in this process, you mentioned that you have to overlearn perhaps or relearn many things or how to relate to money. How did you handle sometimes the stress of not knowing what to do or not knowing if you had enough information? And the reason why I'm asking is because we tend to overthink a lot in our mind and then we don't make decisions. Or we may repeat in our mind all the poor decisions we made in the past and we start spending hours ruminating and ruminating or we anticipate gloom and doom scenarios. So how did you handle that? And how do you coach your clients to handle those thoughts that they may have? Well, I I start from a place of, of assumed wisdom mm-hmm. in a way. Like I, I talk about, or I think about our our wonderful complexity as mm-hmm. humans, that in every kind of decision that we make in every behavior, we really are this matrix of competing needs. Mm-hmm. So, so all financial behavior makes sense in a way. It's always trying to meet a need. So sometimes the thing that we're trying to puzzle out is what is, what is the need that you're trying to meet mm-hmm. with the behavior? So, so I think that that helps, first of all, to create a little space for people to be able to reflect on their own choices and not think that it's just a, a indication of whether they're bad or, or they, they, there's something terrible about them that mm-hmm. happens to come out in their money. It's more like, you know, there's a mystery in some ways to be solved. And so like, is there, for example, a, like, is there a limiting belief? Mm-hmm. And the intention of that limiting belief is to be protective to keep you from going into a situation where you might be exposed to um, some being rejected by a person in your life because you've gotten too big for your britches Um, or you're bound to be disappointed. And so you don't even let yourself think about it. Um, There's always something if we, if we look beneath the surface and, and say, there's, there's a purpose to this choice and this behavior Mm -hmm. How can I look at that with more self-compassion and curiosity mm-hmm. than judgment and just trying to 
to stop it. Because what I see otherwise, if we don't take that approach, if we just focus on eliminating the behavior without digging at what's underneath is is either the behavior resumes Mm -hmm. or the person finds another way to try to meet that need. And that new way may be just as self-destructive or limiting as the, the problem that they had with money. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. I think in my experience, all behaviors fight for survival. Um, If I can ask a little bit more, in your website, there is one beautiful paragraph when you talk about guiding people to make values-based choices within the approach that um, the therapeutic approach I practice, accept as a commitment therapy, we're big into helping everyone to find what really matters to them, what type of person they want to be. How do you capitalize that in the work you do when we think about financial decisions or financial fears? So I will hear a client talk about different choices that they've made in the past or situations that they've been in. And I will pull out examples to help provide language for Mm -hmm. them around, like, it sounds like there's a really strong value around freedom, for Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. Um, or being able to have creative choice when Mm -hmm. it comes to the type of work that you want to do. And, and to look at the, the ways that we have values when it comes to our financial lives in earning values, Mm -hmm. like the type of work that we want to do or how we want to earn money or put a value on our work, on our spending values. And then on the, the lifestyle, which is not just kind of like a material lifestyle. I mean, even like how we want to sort of experience our days and experience ourselves. So, so helping people be able to articulate what's important to them, because if we don't do that, society Mm -hmm. very readily will tell us what it thinks our financial values should be. And that may not hold true for people who want to have like a, a creative life or a purpose-driven life um, or a life of simplicity who don't feel like the sort of like the capitalist raw, raw, get more money, um, all of those shoulds that are associated with that, they feel like, well, that doesn't really reflect how I feel and who I am. So am I just bad at money if those are mm-hmm. things that are not important to me? And so like having the language piece of it, I find is super, super important. Mm-hmm. I came to this country, I came to the States in 2001. I'm coming from Bolivia, South America, from a working class family. And the model in my family was to work hard, push hard, and make sure that there is no room for risk when you're making financial decisions. And of course, at times in my life, I had financial anxiety. Am I making the right decision? How do I know this is the right decision? What if I mess up? What if I cannot be financially independent in the States? So if I were one of your clients, how would you handle that? How will you respond to that? Well, my first question would be, excuse me. My first question would be, how is this showing up as a pain point in your Mm -hmm. life? Mm -hmm. Um, So where are the the specific places where these past messages or this this identity that you kind of inherited, um, where is that creating tension between the 
the, the person that you want to be or the goals that you have for your life? Mm -hmm. Um, or where is it creating extra friction between like, maybe you've already decided like, this is something that I know that I want to do, but, oh, I know it just kicks up all of these feelings with me Mm -hmm. and and it feels much harder than I want it to be. That's what I sort of mean by friction. Um, so we, we explore where those messages have, have come from. Like you've said, this is, this was the way that we talked about money. This is the way that money made sense in my culture and and in that place and time and in that socioeconomic class. Um, And then we look at where you are now. And Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of that is that it helps us understand that fundamentally money is subjective. The way that we, we identify what is right or wrong with money really comes. It's a very culture bound kind Mm -hmm. of a framework. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we, we see that it's subjective, I, I think that that somehow that can loosen the hold that those old ideas have for us. So instead of trying to circle, what is it? Square the circle, you know, to make that make sense in our new life, we can go, those were lessons that, that made sense in those particular set of circumstances. But I'm really, I'm, I'm challenging myself or my life's journey requires me to be able to operate in a different culture. Mm-hmm. and so that's not necessarily going to feel native to me, but I can learn it Mm -hmm. and I can see how other people make sense of their choices when they're in these situations. And I can, I can know that those old feelings that are about keeping me safe are still going to show up. They don't just magically disappear when we get new information, (laughs) but we, we can relate to them differently. So it's Mm -hmm. like, for example, I have an issue. I grew up in a working class family too, or I come from a working class background mm-hmm. and I struggle to pay anybody to do anything for me. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. terrible. I will, <laughs> I will cobble together. Like my husband makes fun of me because he's like, how many times are you going to fix that refrigerator drawer that's broken before you will hire somebody to come into the house. And I'm like a, a million, like until it literally stops functioning. That's that's come up. I love it. And I see how other people do that more easily. And I wish that was easier for me, but uh-huh. it's not. So on the one hand, I have a spouse and many of us, this is our first workaround is we, if we're partnered, we find a partner who does mm-hmm. these things easier than we do. So we <laughs> sort of outsource it to the partner. (laughs) Yes. Um, he will call and he will bring someone in when I have proven to be too stubborn there, because that is not one of his issues. Um, the other thing is we make the choice when we are in a neutral place, Mm -hmm. knowing that if we're trying to make that decision kind of on the fly, we're going to, and our anxiety goes up, you know, when our anxiety goes up, we, we sort of contract, we, we want to go smaller. We want to go with what's familiar. So the more that we can help ourselves make decisions ahead of time, mm-hmm. such that when we're in the situation, that choice has already been made. And then when the feelings come up, we can just go, oh, this isn't new information. I knew that these feelings were going to come up around this. That's okay. I can just sort of like, I can tolerate the feelings that come up while I still move forward mm-hmm. with what my plan is. Um and that's really a lot of the financial wellness work is, is making, I, I, I think of it as like making friends with these different like dimensions of ourself and our experience. So we're not cutting it off, mm-hmm. but we know that that's just a part of us that's trying to keep ourselves safe, but we, 
we can work with that and not be limited by it. What a liberating shift, right? What a liberating shift. I love what you're saying because I think sometimes we do think that once I have new information and I make the right decision, I won't be anxious. But reality is that we are going to be anxious. Our old beliefs are going to kick in. Our urges to do things that are familiar to us are going to show up. So I think it's really about making room for them and still making the best choices that we can make in the current context. Exactly. And not letting that anxiety touch off a shame spiral. Mm-hmm. There is something that, that we talk and act a lot in acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, it's the skill of holding our feelings and holding our thoughts lively instead of holding them with white knuckles as the absolute truth. So we can really learn to open up to them and just remember that we're a container of those feelings, those experiences, those stories. And I can see how that can be transformative to make these pivots from looking at how we handle money with a lot of shame and fear versus really using as a way to make a values-based choice. Yes. If it's okay if I can ask a little bit more, um, let me just share this personal experience I had. One of the biggest shifts in how I relate to money was making decisions that involve 100% security. For example, when I graduated from graduate school, I was working for my university. I was running a training clinic. And that was a great position. I absolutely love it. It was a secure salary. But as the clinic grew, also the bureaucratic and administrative task grew. And my unhappiness grew, you know, exactly at the same level. So after three years, I decided to make a pivot to work in my private practice, to be in some way like a freelance psychologist. And absolutely love it. The best decision I have made in my life. But I remember the times when I was considering that decision, I knew in my heart that it was time for me to leave that clinic. I did the best. It was a great experience, but it was important to create a new. So my uncertainty was going up and down, up and down, up and down. And I made a choice. I made a values-based choice to say that for me, it's important to to have a lot of choice in how I work and when I work and the type of therapy I want to practice. So that was very important. Uh, But that came with facing uncertainty and making room for that. I didn't know how my practice was going to go. Didn't have a clue, don't have any business background. My family definitely doesn't have any business background. It was really making a values-based choice while leaving a lot of uncertainty. So what would you recommend to people who perhaps are considering either career changes or financial decisions they have to make, but they are petrified because they don't know how it's going to be in the future? Well, I I think fundamentally, one of the things that we need to accept as humans is that nobody has an idea of what the future holds. Even people who seem to be very certain who have a a plan that they believe in. The truth is, you know, anything, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow as the the saying goes. Um, So in many ways, control is an illusion. Mm -hmm. Real control is an illusion. But as human beings, we are programmed to seek control 
over our lives in order to solve the problem of anxiety. So like I, earlier, when I was talking about pain points, mm-hmm. like we don't make the, the pain point or we don't identify the problem as making the uncertain certain. Mm-hmm. We, we identify the problem as being able to handle the anxiety that comes around uncertainty. So, so first is kind of a shift in focus Mm-hmm. Of, of identifying the the way that we're experiencing that and how we're framing the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, within that, I find that there are lots of things that we can do to create a system of control in, in times of uncertainty. So for example, we could say, I could say to you, you know what, you're going to try this for a year. So we, we create a time boundary as just a way of, of asserting a sense of control. Um, on the situation. You're going to try this for a year. Let's look at three different scenarios for how this could go. One is like the bare minimum that you think you could do. One is the medium. And one is what if it takes off beyond your wildest dreams? And we fill in the details of those scenarios. So like if it was the minimum, mm-hmm. would you need to have savings in order to make that happen. And, and for many of us, like those are things that we can work on ahead of time. Like before you would leave the job, mm-hmm. you would say, you know what, I'm going to make sure that I have a cushion of this amount of money. I am going to look at my expenses in order to see what are some things that I would be able to adjust if I'm not bringing in the revenue from mm-hmm. this business, etc. So, so the more we can sort of fill out the full circumstances of if X happens, then Y, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if X is my income, then what does that mean in terms of what I'm able to spend, for example, or what's happening with my time that can really alleviate the anxiety that's coming up around Mm -hmm. that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So having a coping plan and identifying potentially maybe three scenarios of how will it look if X happens, Y happens, Z happens, and then having a plan for that. But also to use it as a way to have fun. Like, like this is the great thing about scenarios that, that I really enjoy in terms of work with people is like, what if, for example, we were in the wildest dreams mm-hmm. kind of a plan. Like, what would that look like in your mm-hmm. life? Not, not just in terms of like, all right, you're making all this money. What are you going to do with that money? Like, <laughs> is, it, is it a wonderful vacation now that you can afford to take every mm-hmm. year? Are you, are you giving more to support causes that are important to you? So like, even if, if we are not individually excited about the idea of a lot of money mm-hmm. sometimes we can get excited about the the things that we would do with that money mm-hmm. and that make that creates the kind of motivation then on the other side to be able to push ourselves to do the things that are less comfortable for example raising our rates if we're people who yeah. need to set a rate or a fee mm-hmm. for our work and we hate to do that it's like okay but the reward for doing the thing that's unpleasant is I get to do this other thing or if it is you know having a structured invoicing or process or asking for a raise if you have an employer um, we can use the things that are are fun and and motivating to help reduce the friction Mm -hmm. or to be able to tolerate the feelings that come up around the things that are harder. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, while you were sharing that, what came to my mind was that sometimes going through a water struggle is worth it. It's like the two sides of the coin come together. If I think about all the amazing things I could do with X amount of money, perhaps that makes it worth it for me to jump and feel a little bit of anxiety and make this tough choice that I'm afraid of. I love that frame. Um, within ACT, you know, again, I'm sorry if I'm talking a lot about ACT. <laughs> but that's where my lenses go as a behaviorist. Uh, we talk a lot about how behind everything that we're struggling, behind our hairs, there is something that we care about. And when we tap in what we care about, then that's what gives us all the strength to make these tough choices. Uh, and I think that's what you are referring to. Yes. And I, I see that as a very important role for me mm-hmm. in the work that I do with mm-hmm. clients is I, I hold a, I think, more holistic and expansive understanding of how money can work in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I try to provide is, you know, you talk to me about what's mm-hmm. not working for you or what your, your hopes and your goals are. And I help create a sense of, of cohesion around that, of how that makes sense. And what are the different pieces that can be moved around? So like one example is kind of the, the, like, how do we map out what a plan could be for leaving Mm -hmm. your job and starting a private practice? Um, Getting in with some of the cognitive behavioral kinds of, of tools, Mm -hmm. um, or using like internal family systems, et cetera, to like understand the different parts of ourselves that want to show up and try to manage situations Mm -hmm. Um, in order to, in some ways, combat the programming that we get socially and culturally, that's telling us that money only is supposed to work one way. So I, I think of myself as like somebody who speaks the language of money who's really trying to teach that to people as a way of, of understanding that, that we, we project so much of ourselves onto money and and onto our financial lives. And it's, it's this wonderful opportunity for us to engage with money, not just in terms of the tool properties that money Mm -hmm. has, like we can quantify Mm -hmm. it, we can do all of these external things, but symbolically as well working mm-hmm. you know in the symbolic and the tool properties mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can totally see that that's your frame so I have one last question and I'm sorry because time goes so fast so quickly if you were to have a cup of coffee or tea or a beer or a scotch with any person you want who will that be and why I would do, I would want to meet up with Alice Roosevelt. I think Longfellow is her married name. The the oldest daughter of Theodore Roosevelt um, and the only daughter of, of Teddy Roosevelt and his first wife. And I just always loved her place in history. She has such a, an interesting presence at that point in time, which was the early 20th century. You know, it, in many ways, she was very privileged, but she was also um, 
she was not parented. Her mother died shortly mm -hmm. after she died or her mother died shortly after she was born. And Teddy Roosevelt was so distraught. He basically like left her with her grandparents. Oh. Um, so she was a little bit neglected until he remarried, but then she became this amazingly salty person. <laughs> I think she, she famously had a pillow that said was the uh, origination of the saying, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit by me. Huh. Um, and she was the wife. I think her, her husband became the speaker of the house. So anyway, she, wow. she has always kind of fascinated me for a long time <laughs> because she was just a person who was well-placed at a particular moment in history. Um, to to be a real sort of like iconoclast and rebel in her time oh my goodness I love to read the stories about rebels so we'll take a look okay. <laughs> Amanda thank you so much um, no one teaches us how to relate to money so on that note for everyone listening to our conversation I will highly highly recommend that you take a look at the work Amanda is doing and how she thinks about money because I can tell you it has been extremely liberating in my life to develop a new relationship with money thank you so much to everyone for listening and Amanda many 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 thanks for your time and sharing all your insights with us thank you Patricia thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!